Whether you have a diagnosis or not, I don't care. I'll teach you how to find what's causing your health struggles using the blood work you already have right here on this podcast, but also in my new book, Why Are My Labs Normal? Go grab it on Amazon and let me know you love it and appreciate the knowledge by leaving a review for both the book and this podcast. Practitioners, you can now register for the In This Together live event with me in Orlando, Florida, February 20th, 21st, and 22nd. Grab the link to register below, get all the details, and know that we're in this together. We're going to celebrate you at this event, and I'm going to bring in the best mindset, marketing, and business experts. But more importantly, I can't wait to meet you in person and give you the biggest hug. See you in Orlando in February 20, 21st, and 22nd. If you haven't started using Systemic Formulas supplements yet, you should be. Go to systemicformulas.com and mybiome.com, M-Y-B-Y-O-M-E to learn more. You can also come join me inside their private Facebook group for practitioners called Systemic Formulas Clinical Nutrition. Everyone else can learn more about them and their amazing supplements and their amazing results on Systemic Formulas Instagram page. All right, let's get started and happy holidays. Welcome to the Beyond the Diagnosis podcast with me, Dr. Kylie. We're going to talk about mold today, mold and chronic fatigue syndrome. So if you want more energy, you think you might have been exposed or are experiencing exposure to mold, stay tuned because Eric Johnson is here to help us. Eric, tell us a little bit about your background if you wouldn't mind. Well, howdy from Incline Village, Nevada, ground zero for chronic fatigue syndrome. I'm actually uh, walking distance away from Dr. Paul Cheney's office where he called the CDC for help back in 1985 over clusters of sick people in sick buildings that he couldn't explain. Mm -hmm. um, There was a flu going through and this flu got to be known as the yuppie flu. It's quite famous all over the world. But what... um, the CDC and Dr. Cheney didn't recognize at the time was that the clusters of people were all occurring in sick buildings. They, they noted this. They actually wrote it down and it appeared in several newspapers. But all the focus on chronic fatigue syndrome and the possible cause of the yuppie flu went into viral theories, none of it all at all into sick building syndrome and what might be in the sick buildings. And he called that called the CDC. Did they? I mean, did they care? What did they do back in the 1980s? Well, there was a weird flu going all the way across the U.S. at that time, and this got to be known as the chronic Epstein Barr virus syndrome because uh-huh. it reactivated EBV. Uh-huh. They never really found a cause for that, but when this thing struck at North Lake Tahoe. It didn't fit the EBV syndrome because the uh, incubation period for EBV is over a month, whereas the Tahoe flu had a four to seven day incubation period and it swept through like lightning. So it wasn't quite the same thing. When Dr. Cheney and Dr. Peterson started doing EBV serology tests, they found active Epstein-Barr virus patients in people, but it didn't explain the wildfire spread that didn't match the incubation period. 
So Dr. Cheney called the Center for Disease Control for help trying to solve this mystery. And? They uh, were intrigued by this. It didn't make sense because obviously if it spreads faster than EBV can possibly do, that rules it out. But the EBV serology test that had just been unleashed at this time was uh, very compelling. It showed that people really did have parameters that matched the EBV syndrome. So what was the deal? They finally sent two CDC epidemiologists out, John Kaplan and Gary Holmes. And there's a lot of uh, misconception over what the CDC was here to do because people thought they were here to solve the mystery, find out why so many hundreds of people all got sick in a small town at the same time. And that's not really what their mission was. It was only to find out if this was an outbreak of EBV syndrome and if Epstein-Barr virus had mutated and was causing a new disease with a faster incubation period than anywhere seen before. So Dr. Holmes spent a couple of weeks looking over the EBV serology test, concluded that there was evidence for an active EBV type syndrome, except EBV could not possibly be the cause. So he wrote up an ab abstract on this called the Tahoe study. The, um, he presented this at a meeting in Atlanta, Georgia at CDC headquarters when they were trying to figure out what to do about these outbreaks what they were trying to do about the EBV syndrome and about these outbreaks that didn't fit. And they decided that they had better form a new syndrome to replace the chronic EBV syndrome because it didn't quite fit. There were other viruses. There must be another cause. So they went ahead and announced that they were going to create a new research instrument and call it chronic fatigue syndrome for the purpose of investigating this mystery. And this is where it gets interesting because no follow-up was ever done. They just dropped it. In fact, the moment the ink was dry on the uh, chronic fatigue syndrome definition, they dropped the investigation. They didn't look into the EBV syndrome. They didn't look at the Lake Tahoe outbreak. They simply ceased all efforts. And doctors with this void of information started diagnosing people with this new chronic fatigue syndrome, a definition that seemed to outline fatigue for unexplained causes. They would just put out the, the diagnosis on people as if this were the, the end of their investigation. No further follow-up or study needed. And over time, the chronic fatigue syndrome diagnosis spread to an encompassed so many things that people completely forgot what John Kaplan and Gary Holmes were here to do. And the CFS syndrome became disconnected from its roots. So that's how it actually got started was just. Yeah. I didn't know that. I know. Interesting. Yeah. It's amazing how the history got completely lost. Yeah. It was, it was for an outbreak illness one that spread like wildfire and knocked down an entire town at North Lake Tahoe. It didn't just make hundreds of people sick, it made thousands, or at least the Tahoe flu made thousands of people sick. But the anomaly was the people who didn't recover from this flu. 
And the pattern of people in sick buildings showed up immediately. The um, researchers that came to investigate, like Dr. Anthony Komaroff of uh, Harvard and um, Dr. Paul Levine, there were many, many researchers. They all came to supposedly solve this mystery, and yet all they ever did was look at the EBV serology test and go, yeah, we see fluctuating EBV levels. We don't know why. And that was it. No epidemiology was ever done. And when the sick buildings were brought to their attention, they just sort of did go, that's nice, and ask no questions. So that's how I got interested in mold. It's because I was familiar with these sick buildings, and I knew there had to be something in there. And when we tried to tell the researchers, we think the mold is toxic, they said, no, that's not possible. Mold is just an allergy. There's nothing in our literature to indicate that mold is anything more than an allergy, so that is not the cause. But it sure didn't act like an allergy. It was pure poison. There was a toxic, horrible sensation, and it left people apparently with permanent immune damage. So a couple of years go by, and finally information about toxic mold starts to emerge. In fact, the um, first peer-reviewed abstract on Stachybotrys, the toxic black mold, appeared the next year after the CDC investigation in 1986. This was by Dr. William Croft, who investigated a family in Chicago that was all sick with black mold, identified Stachybotrys and the very concept that mold was more than an allergy entered the medical literature for the very first time. Unfortunately, that was too late for any of our researchers to look into, so they kind of missed the boat, didn't make the connection, and the whole world over, chronic fatigue syndrome got to be known as an unexplained viral illness with no connection to the sick buildings that was really the core of why Dr. Cheney called the CDC in the first place. Why were these teachers failing to recover? Why were these casino workers down in the basement getting sick, not getting any better? One by one, we found that all these clusters for which the um, syndrome had been originally coined, we found toxic mold in all of them. And then I started asking other clusters elsewhere in Sacramento, in uh, Boston, in Washington, D.C., clusters that were diagnosed as possibly having this chronic fatigue syndrome, and I would simply call them up. Do you know anything about this, this strange black mold? And I kept hearing, why, yes, there's this dreaded black mold, stachybotrys, and that's the stuff that made us sick. So ever since then, I've been telling chronic fatigue syndrome researchers that there's more evidence to this syndrome that was never investigated. They go, well, it's not in the literature. So for us, it's as if it doesn't exist. You have no proof. They go, well, to enter it into the medical literature, you have to follow up on the original investigation, come back, find out why these clusters existed, learn about the toxic mold that was discovered later, put the pieces of the puzzle together, and clear up this mystery of chronic fatigue syndrome.
and are they doing it or you are doing it? They are flat out refusing. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, it's uh, turned into a sociological investigation, an examination of why researchers behave the way they do, because rather than the interests that I anticipated, virtually to a researcher, they all say, you have no proof, you have no evidence. Well, actually we do, because when the buildings, when the school administrators, when the casino owner, when the various clusters learned about toxic mold, they called the mold experts, the mold professionals who came and tested it and found toxic mold. So it does exist, this evidence is out there and it's actually in the literature, but it's not in the chronic fatigue syndrome literature. It's in the indoor air quality professions literature. <laughs> indoor air quality professions literature. Yeah, a case of researchers, you know, the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. So what have they found? The uh, indoor air quality profession? Mm -hmm. Well, they found that the toxic mold is incredibly immune damaging. It does fit the parameters for a, a chronic um, neurological type illness. And when it occurs in clusters, it fits all the parameters from chronic fatigue syndrome. And they actually devoted an entire chapter of the 1994 Saratoga Springs Proceedings Manual, which is the Indoor Air Quality Board's Bible for their state-of-the-art te uh, state technology. The, the first meeting of the indoor air quality profession from people the world over to put their knowledge together was in Saratoga Springs, New York in 1994. And they made a book out of it. And this book is republished every few years. And in their first one, an entire chapter is devoted to the question of whether or not their paradigm, the toxic black mold, is connected with chronic fatigue syndrome. So what are they doing about it? I called them up and said, well, as a prototype for chronic fatigue syndrome and somebody who's familiar with these buildings and the history of the development of this paradigm, I can assure you that we did indeed find stachybotrys in those very locations. And I found that in a way they're not much different than chronic fatigue syndrome researchers because they also said, well, you have no proof, meaning you have no peer-reviewed abstract in the literature that convey, conveys this to us. And I go, of course not. You would have to follow up and write that paper in order for you to have it. Has that ever been done? No, it's like a catch-22. We can't look into it because there's no evidence. There won't be evidence because they won't look into it. Oh my gosh, that's the lovely research world that you're in, it looks like. So, um, okay, so besides like the, the black stachybotrys type mold, there's a lot of other molds. But are you focusing more on that specific one in relationship to chronic fatigue syndrome? Yeah, it was found so consistently in the clusters that I feel that there's something that stands out about this particular mold. It's more devastating than the others. Mm -hmm. And indeed, if you tell a doctor, 
that you were sick from Aspergillus, Penicillium, Cladosporium, uh, any of the others, any of the common molds, the first thing I'll say is, well, those are common molds. So if you got sick, it's probably because you were immune suppressed. But the literature on Stachybotrys is very strong that this mold is capable of causing immune suppression. So in one way, by focusing on this, I can demonstrate that it fits the parameters for a neuroimmune disease. And it's also a symbol of how they're failing to follow up on this one particular clue by saying, well, there's other factors, there's other molds, there's other clues, so therefore we're not going to look. Yeah. So here you are left with chronic fatigue syndrome, trying to battle someone to say, yeah, it come from black mold and no one's listening, no one cares enough to go back and readdress the issue that was brought up in the 80s. Now, say because the listeners are smart and I talk about mold all the time, what do you do if you've been exposed? Well, I found that if I'm in an exposure situation where I sense the all too familiar uh, feeling of, of what I've learned to associate with Stachybotrys, and I did find buildings where Stachybotrys was positively identified, went there and just trained myself to be my own mold dog. I go, yeah, this feels exactly the same as the original cluster, the school, the high school, as the casino, which I also worked, so I knew what that sensation was. And I realized that when I have that sensation, first of all, I get out of there as quickly as I can. And second, I take a shower, change my clothes, put my clothing outside to avoid carrying contamination from spores and fragments home with me. And by keeping it out of my environment, I had this incredible recovery. Um, not just me, others in the original chronic fatigue syndrome outbreak, we learned the same tricks. Don't go into the bad buildings, decontaminate afterward. Some of them, like the casino workers, they just found jobs in a different casino and had a better than 80% recovery just by doing that. Yeah, getting out of the environment. And when they tried to tell this to the researchers, they'd go, well, since you no longer have chronic fatigue syndrome, you aren't of interest to us anymore, so we're not going to listen to you. We're only interested in sick people. Not interested in how the sick people got better. Heaven forbid we learn from that. Heaven forbid. So you, you decontaminate yourself by showering, not taking those contaminated clothes into your current environment. Um, and I know this can be very extensive, too, as far as mold remediation. Like I've heard of of individuals having to completely scratch their entire wardrobe, buy a new house, not bring anything with them, so they have to start fresh because of the chronic mold in their bodies that they're constantly trying to detox. I was in that exact situation. I found the, uh, the toxic black mold in my house. And this was before there were mold experts, mold testers, uh -huh. Mm -hmm. I had to hire a mycologist to drive up from Sacramento, cost me vast amounts of money. And I said, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to go around to different mold colonies and disturb them because I know not all molds bother me, but some particular type of mold does. 
And when we find the mold that bothers me, it'll knock me flat. And I want you to identify it for me. So and that's this is in did. your own house or is this in the contaminated buildings? It was in, a, in my own house. Okay. But I recognize the same uh, sense of exposure that I did in the casino and in the six schools. So I'm going, it's in here. I've got to get it out. I actually called up allergists all around, for miles around, from Sacramento to Reno. And I said, what, what do you do if you find something in your house like this mold allergy and you want to get it out of your house? What do you do? Do you uh, work with contractors, with experts to identify this stuff and remove it? And they said, no, we just give shots because that's what allergies are. You know, you, we offer desensitization with shots. I go, well, suppose I don't want shots. I want to remove the offending substance. And they acted like I was absolutely crazy. Like there was no basis for thinking that you should try to remove whatever it is in your, in your house. The mold industry, the remediation industry, hadn't even started yet. When was this? This was um, in the late 1990s, about 1997. Okay. And this was just barely coming on the radar and so I hired this mold tester and I did go around to black mold on wood, spread it around my, you know, with my fingers, sniff it, no problem. And he, you know, it's like, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And I'm going, this stuff, I'll eat this on my peanut butter sandwich. I'll tell you, when we get to the bad stuff, I will let you know. And I found green molds and white molds, and all kinds of went into musty basements, uh, to wet soil, you know, dirt, no effect on me. And then we found a black mold in my bathroom behind the shower, growing on the sheetrock. And he cut a little hole and said, you know, I've, I've heard of people that are really, really reactive to this stuff. So I'd stand back if I were you, approach it slowly. So I stood behind him as he cut this hole. And when that stuff wafted out of the hole, I just hit the ground. I'm going, that's the stuff. That's it. What is it? And of course, it was Stachybotrys atra. It was called atra at the time. They changed the name later to Stachybotrys charterum. Evidently, just to confuse people. <laughs> so they're, they're very good at that. They changed the name just to kind of keep you on your toes. Yeah, so when but, uh, they, they took it, they got it tested, did anybody care about getting rid of it, or was that your job? That was my job. So, so what, I, you I sued up? That, absolutely. Yeah, I, I learned that the people who were familiar or learning about this toxic mold, they were wearing hazmat suits, mm -hmm. full face masks, gloves, the works. So I did that. I um, removed the not just the wall, I removed the floor, the structure, everything associated with the bathtub, anything within 10 feet. I, I just completely gutted that, that entire area, all of it, because I wanted to make sure that that stuff was gone. Mm -hmm. And I did a pretty darn good job, I think. But the problem was I was still reacting to my house, the residual contamination that had just soaked into the walls, into the floors, and into my possessions 
was still a driving force in my illness. So I took uh, samples out to a pristine location, out to the desert actually, because at Lake Tahoe, we've got a nice desert just an hour east of us, very yeah. handy. Yeah, I'm in Salt Lake, and so I, I know there. the area. Yeah, I'd, I'd get feeling pretty good again, camp for a couple of days, and then experimentally bring contaminated objects close to me. And that alone was enough to keep me sick. So ultimately, so the researchers the researchers should have been following your scenario. And literally, you are a peer-reviewed article in and of itself, but just nobody will do it. So you're on right. your own. All right. And as a prototype for the syndrome, I mean, somebody who is used by Dr. Gary Holmes, they lifted my symptoms, my signs right out of my medical chart to serve as a matrix for this new syndrome. Basically, this makes me qualified to ask or even demand that this research be done. And researchers do not see it that way. I'm like, we're in 2022, in fact, so say, we're, what, 40 years, 40 years later, and is anything still being done? Uh, they've increased their denial, <gasps> and they're working even harder to make sure that there's distance between the original Holmes chronic fatigue syndrome and their redefinitions. And they tell me straight out, well, the, your old evidence doesn't matter anymore because we've redefined the syndrome since then. And I go, well, that's true. Based on your opinions, you wrote down signs and symptoms on a sheet of paper, but they're not based in, on anything. The FACUDA CFS definition from 1994, the Oxford 1992 British definition, the Australian definition, they're not based on any cluster or anything real where an investigator went out and said, gosh, I can't figure out what's going on here. All those definitions are modifications of the original homes where they just took the signs and symptoms and said, well, I think this looks good on a sheet of paper and wrote it down. The homes definition is the only one that was based on real people from a real outbreak with real buildings where you can go back and find out exactly what happened. What is that definition of chronic fatigue syndrome? It's the original Holmes, Gary Holmes, 1988 chronic fatigue syndrome definition. Do you know it off the top of your head? Um, well, no, there's, there's quite a bit to it. Um, but you can look it up online and it explains in the preamble why this definition was coined. It was because the... Chronic Epstein-Barr virus syndrome had been cast into doubt by Dr. Cheney and, and myself. We actually provided the evidence that something was wrong with that, that theory. And the Holmes study upon which this um, CFS syndrome is based, this was an abstract written in 1987 on Truckee High School on the teachers, the specific teachers, not just in a, a sick building, in one sick teacher's lounge. One lounge. Nine teachers got sick in a single room. This was at Truckee High School. Now, you'd think it'd be very simple for a scientist to conceive of the idea. If they all got sick in one room, 
you could go and look in that one room and find out what's different between that one room and the rest of the school. Yeah, but that's not good for pharma. No, and apparently pharma can't fix that. <laughs> I guess it's not uh, good for the idea that you can apply for grant funding to study an unknown syndrome because this would be too easy. Yeah. So that's been my experience is they're actually going out of their way to keep chronic fatigue syndrome as an unsolved, wide open entity to serve as a vehicle for their own ambitions of getting grant funding. Hmm. Not to mention those with who get diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. I mean, what do they do for treatment? Nothing. Um, if you have a doctor who believes in the old reactivated EBV theory, then they'll tr give you antivirals for active Epstein-Barr virus. But are they looking for why that EBV was reactivated? No, they're not. I love these correlations we're making. I talk a lot about mold and I talk a lot about viruses and EBV on this uh, podcast. Because in the blood work, you can look for, oh yeah, in the blood work, you can look for viruses. It's monocyte count and lymphocyte count. If your lymphocyte count is over 30%, you're having an active uh, virus. If your monocyte count is over 7%, it's also considered a low-grade active virus. If we go over like 12, 13, 14%, now we're looking at possibly a, a positive Epstein-Barr virus test. Now, after the conversation you and I are just having, is it Epstein-Barr virus or is it some reaction from mold? Well, when Dr. Cheney uh, was using this new Nichols Epstein-Barr virus serology test, it not only included the elevated EBV antibodies, viral capsid antigen and EBV early antigen, but also Epstein-Barr virus nuclear antigen, which is supposed to be elevated. After you get EBV once, your Epstein-Barr virus nuclear antigen is supposed to be elevated and stay that way for life. That's what keeps it in restraint. And what Dr. Cheney found is in the people that had fluctuating EBV levels, even if they had a prior infection, their EBV nuclear antigen was depressed, artificially low. So this let us know that something was suppressing immune function and agent X, we don't know what. But then Dr. Cheney said, wow. In fact, the reason why I got selected as a prototype for this new syndrome is Dr. Cheney called me into his office one day and he says, look at your test. And he points down EBV negative, completely negative. He was so excited that he circled it, underlined it twice. He was incredibly excited about that. I was, I was devastated because I thought, oh no, you know, I, I was hoping to get treatment for this EBV syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> you just blew that theory all to hell. And he goes, you don't have Epstein-Barr virus. I need your blood. I need your blood to prove to the Center for Disease Control that what they're calling chronic Epstein-Barr virus syndrome doesn't necessarily even have EBV at all. And this was in 1986. And try as he might, you know, it's EBV is so common in the population, 96% of the population has it. It's very rare to find EBV negative individuals. So by the time of the convening of the Holmes Committee to decide what to do with all this evidence, 
he'd only found 19 people total who were EBV negative, but in all other respects, fit the parameters for the Epstein-Barr virus syndrome. In addition to this, Dr. Cheney and Dr. Peterson sent our blood, the other members of the original cohort, to the Gallo lab, and they discovered a brand new herpes virus, unknown in the literature. At the time, it was called HBLV, human B-cell lymphotropic virus. This was renamed later human herpes virus 6. So that was fairly straightforward. The uh, virus that really scared the Center for Disease Control into convening the Holmes Committee was the concept that maybe there was another virus to come along and take EBV's place, this HBLV or HHV6 virus. They didn't know, so newly discovered, that what it was capable of was completely unknown to them. And it turns out that there's another variant. A couple years after the discovery of the HHV6, they discovered another human herpes virus. And to make it especially confusing, they named it the second one to be discovered, HHV6 beta, HHV6b. And they renamed the original HHV6 alpha. And the HHV6b is the common roseola variant that's in better than 90% of the population. It's a, a childhood rash type disease. Yeah, not my little particular. girl had it when she was one. And yet they really confused the matter because the HHV6-alpha is only in about 10% of the population. It's a neurotropic, more pathogenic variant. And it's the one that they discovered in HIV AIDS. So when they published this, the very few people that looked into this deeply enough to find out that the chronic fatigue syndrome was actually coined because of the scare of this newly discovered HBLV virus, even if they found that out, they generally didn't find out that it was the alpha variant that caused the Tahoe outbreak. That this has an extreme cytopathic effect of wiping out B cells. Now, the EBV test is dependent on B cell proliferation because when EBV uh, in infects the lymphocytes, it does something odd. It immortalizes them. It makes them you know, last a long time and you get a proliferation of B cells. And this is very easy to test for. And when Dr. Cheney and Dr. Peterson started seeing something wrong, they noticed in the original outbreak, in the original cohort, there were people who had no B cells at all, completely wiped out. This was in the absolute birth of cell flow cytometry. And they sent the um, prototypes, their blood, off to Cytometrics Laboratory and found that in contrast to what was being diagnosed as chronic Epstein-Barr virus syndrome, the Tahoe outbreak had a complete loss of B cells to the extent that the lab thought it was an anomaly, that there was something wrong with their test. They kept asking for more blood, redoing the test over and over again until they were satisfied that the testing was real. And here was a syndrome that was completely opposite to EBV, 
in that we had a complete loss of B cells. So talk about confusing. I thought, (laughs) oh, wow, this is nuts. I mean, first they thought it was EBV, then it's not EBV, then the new EBV serology test comes out and it reconfirms it's EBV. Then they find it's not EBV, but it's HBLV. Then it's HHV6, and then it's HHV6 alpha. And through all of this, they're overlooking the effects of toxic mold, which seemed to make the difference between whether or not people recovered from the flu-like illness that went through, or whether they went on to become chronic cases that were worthy of interest by chronic fatigue syndrome researchers. Yeah. And I thought, so is mold really the bottom line of chronic fatigue syndrome, despite the blame on many other viruses. Yeah, I thought they're going to need somebody to explain this to them. And since I was in the middle of this thing, I volunteered to do so. And that's what I've been doing ever since. But unfortunately, the uh, people who've decided that chronic fatigue syndrome has moved on since then, they've applied that term to anything from Lyme disease to a concussion to chronic stress. Yes. It's just like, oh, let's let's put this next to your name and call it good. Are you satisfied now? You have a diagnosis? Yeah, which has nothing to do with any of the original evidence that caused this Holmes 1988 chronic fatigue syndrome definition to originally be coined. Yeah. Well, so fascinating. We want to we want to finish up here. So if you're fighting fatigue and you're like, something's just not right, check the environment, especially that black mold. Um, and then, like I've said many times when I talk about mold, my husband's in construction and he sees black mold all the time when he tears open roofs. And it's right then and right there in houses that people are living in and have lived in for years and years and years. So don't just jump on taking physical treatment and if physical treatment's not working and you're always going back to a sick environment, you can throw out thousands of dollars, but if you're not cleaning up the hold that you're going back to at home or even in the air we're breathing or the clothes we're wearing, as Eric explained, no physical treatment's gonna work. And it sounds like researchers are just really not on our side. No, they are not. All right, Eric, where can people find you? Well, I'm at the Exposing Mold podcast. We're all over the internet. Just look us up. Alicia um, Swami, Keely Saverson, and I are talking about this and not only exposing the properties of toxic mold, but the strange behavior of researchers in refusing to follow up and clear up this whole chronic fatigue syndrome matter. Yeah. And not just chronic fatigue syndrome, let's talk about mold, like clear up the mold matter and how impactful it is on our cells, which then impact our organs because our organs are made up of cells. And who knows what diagnosis it could be blamed on, not just chronic fatigue syndrome, but mold is a big, huge component of your health. So take care of it. Go follow Eric's podcast called Exposing Mold. And uh, thanks for so much for sharing. I had no idea this history and what was going on with research people. Well, thanks for listening. It was very valuable. Thanks, Eric.
Hasn't this season just been so good? We will end it right before Christmas on December 22nd and be back in January for more. Now, along with our incredible in-person event in this together live in Orlando, Florida, you have one last opportunity to come join me live over the virtual Zoom feed. December 13th and 14th is the final live master bloodwork event with a twist. December 13th and 14th block the dates 1 to 5.30 p.m. Eastern both days. Go to the link below to learn more and register. You can also register for the conference right now and get your early bird pricing. All right, let's get going and let's impact the world one life at a time, one podcast episode at a time. <laughs>